Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Educator for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Thank you for joining us today in this special edition of HPNA's Podcast Corner, where we'll be addressing moral distress and complicated grief during this time of national crisis. Today's guest is Kathy Sapiano, Advanced Palliative Hospice Social Worker. Kathy's an Associate Professor in the College of Nursing and the Director of Caring Connections, a Hope and Comfort and Grief Program at the University of Utah. Kathy's been a practicing clinical social worker and psychotherapist for over 35 years and shares with us today lessons on moral distress and its impact to our nurses on the front lines of care, and how this moral distress will impact the grief experience during this unprecedented time. Thank you for joining us. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today for this important webinar for our listeners and our members. Your voice is extremely important to us. We're looking forward to gaining insight into the critical nature of, of moral distress and compassion fatigue. And I want to thank you again on behalf of all of us here at HPNA. So to kind of get started with this, with our conversation today, can you give us some background of what you're seeing from a social worker perspective, as well as an interdisciplinary team member about what is actually going on with the COVID-19 crisis and how you feel like that's impacting our profession as well as healthcare in general. Well, thanks, Julie. I I think, as you mentioned, these are unprecedented times and a crisis that is uniquely located in in healthcare and particularly on our frontline healthcare professionals, uh, physicians, nurses, of course, um, social workers, chaplains, are the nurse aides, the MAs, of course, and you know the cleaning staff. So everyone is facing this incredible life or death challenge, and these challenges are worsened by um, fears of infection, fears of transmission, fears of the unknown, um, uncertainty about the availability and suitability of resources like ventilators, bed space, and personal protective equipment. So these are what kind of bring us to the point we're at today where I think talking about moral distress in nurses is really a very timely topic. Unprecedented times, absolutely. And, you know, the fears of the unknown, Kathy, I think that's probably one of the biggest concerns that we're hearing from members is how do I move forward through this? We're so used to pushing through um, to getting to the other side and we don't even know what the other side looks like, which is just adding to a whole nother element of distress, compassion, fatigue. And then every step along the way in this, in this journey is, is impacting our ability to be resilient and, you know, the resources that, that you bring forth are, are so important for all of our nurses and our listeners at this time. So when you look at reflecting back just a minute to get a, to get a bit of a background, 
what is moral distress as experienced by nurses? How is this um, different from a moral dilemma? Well, thank you. So we are in a situation where it's a moral dilemma, and that dilemma is experienced across society, but again, focused really on healthcare. That dilemma is that there are not likely to be adequate resources to care for everyone in the context of what we would call the medical ethical standard of justice, that burdens and benefits are distributed equally across all persons. But moral distress is really um, well described in the literature and in clinical observation as, uh, as an experience that's almost unique to nurses. So nurses experience this at, at an individual and as, of course as a collective um, level, but they experience this as a moral conflict between what they want to do as moral agents, um, as caregivers, as, as those caring for patients and families, and systems and structures that impede them from acting in ways that they view as congruent, not only with their ethical principles as nurses, but also their personal values. And so the nurse who wants to act and do right in any given situation is actually prevented from doing those things because of systems, healthcare systems and structures that interfere um, or actually prohibit the nurse from behaving in the way that is consistent with the nurse's values and ethical standards. And so this can come in several ways. Um, this can come when um, physicians um, order treatments that nurses feel are either harmful or not beneficial or are contrary to a patient's wishes. And that has always been the case, Julie. I mean, there, those, there have always been those bedside um, conflicts that come up when nurses and uh, physicians or prescribing providers may view a situation differently. But this Absolutely. is now happening, happening in a larger context where the actual healthcare system itself is perhaps interfering with the nurse's ability to be a moral agent of good for the patient. And again, we're not ascribing ill will on, on anyone's part here. I mean, these are un, unusual times, but um, because the nurse is at the bedside and sees and engages with the patient with you know, much more frequency and duration than any other healthcare professional, the nurse is actually unduly burdened by this situation. So what I what I hear you saying, Kathy, is that we're we're facing this this moral distress because this is presenting nurses with situations where the nurse is preventing prevented from acting as a moral agent or behaving ethically under the principles that we've all been trained in practice, and how we can balance that in the presence of our inability or ability to be true to our own personal values. That's, that is, that is a, a distressful scenario. And we have managed to navigate our way through this and, and our, through our careers on at various intervals within our career. And 
you know, hearing you put this to voice tells me that we are facing these types of um, distress uh, or dilemma, if you're looking at the broader picture, on a daily basis, almost on an hourly basis right now. And that leads us to, to how do we how do we move forward or push through this? Yeah. Um, and I think probably to maybe help us with that, if you separate out the present COVID-19 situation, what common circumstances might the nurse experience with moral distress in clinical settings? Well, again, um, this is where palliative care has made really historic transitions in, in healthcare in the United States of instead of um, investing uh, authority in the doctor to say what is right or, or wrong for a patient, um, the, the purpose of palliative care is to return to goals of care of the, of, of the patient. And, and bringing in their family. And so this has been, we can't, we can't overstate this, Julie. This is a remarkable transition in healthcare to return autonomy to the patient, to uh, make every effort to inform patients and families of diagnosis, prognosis, options of care, implications of those options. I mean, this is really the unique contribution of palliative care, not just at end of life, but really across healthcare, sort of addressing these issues of, yes, we have the technology to do something, but, but should we? And should we give patients voice in doing this, but not just merely autonomy, but the informed autonomy of shared decision-making that's unique um, in, in, in palliative care. And I, I will say, of course, was started in palliative care, but one of the great joys in palliative care is seeing this uh, philosophy and these, the techniques of goals of care discussion being infiltrated throughout all of healthcare decision-making now. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's why I think palliative care is uniquely teed up to be um, a voice of reason and provide guidance um, during this time of pandemic where decisions are having to be made so rapidly and under such, um, and such intense um, conditions uh, for families who may not be present and for patients and healthcare providers. You know, Kathy, it made my heart smile to hear you uh, reference this futility um, discussion. I remember listening to a presentation that you did many years ago and, and broke down at that time. And this was probably, Kathy, maybe nine or 10 years ago. <laughs> and you said in that presentation, um, just because we can does not mean that we should. And it has been one of those quotes that has stuck with me throughout my career from that point forward, framing it in that mind, asking myself just because we can doesn't mean we should. And thank you for, for reminding us of the importance of we've done this, we can do this again, and let's, let's, let's work through it. I appreciate that very much. So, Kathy, what structures um, do you think increase the risk of moral distress? 
Well, I think um, the biggest one is poor communication. And I think um, that can be poor communication that happens within a team, say within a ICU team or within a med surge team or within any healthcare team. Of course, we have different kinds of teams, Julie. We have established teams like a palliative care team or uh, an ICU team that meet routinely. They know each other, they trust each other, they work with each other day in and day out. But the other kind of team, and this is where communication can really break down, is when we have these temporary teams that are immediately constituted to address one crisis, one patient event, and then they break up and then those team members are reconstituted into other teams very quickly to handle a different patient emergency. And, and there, there's a great risk for communication breakdown, mostly because there's an absence of trust. You know, when you have a, a well-functioning team, um, they trust each other. You know, they don't have to be best friends, but That's they right. trust each other and they know how each other would work. So communication difficulties are, are the biggest challenge when, when we think about moral distress. But an, another challenge, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> and every bit as important are power dynamics. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not surprising anyone listening to this, that there are, there are quite profound disparities in terms of the power that different individuals and professions within healthcare teams have. Um, and so nurses and have a long history of this, a long history of not having the same level of power in any team as a physician provider would have. Now, you know, that's long history. We're not going to change that overnight, but, and I will, and I'm not saying this to disparage physicians in any way as I'm married to a physician, but, um, that power dynamic, I mean, even if you think about an expression like doctor's orders, um, that's, that's different. I mean, and that does even just convey a little underscore of that dynamic. And so uh -huh. a nurse may feel an inherent um, lack of empowerment in his or her contribution to the team decision-making. And now, and when we think, so those are sort of the base, baseline issues. And, and again, that dynamic is very often between nurse and physician or nurse and larger hospital leadership. Now, in contrast, as you know, I'm a social worker and social workers always battle bureaucracy, but we kind of do it from the side and we do it obliquely and uh, most of us who practice for a long time do a little of it under the radar. And so we can manipulate power dynamics in ways that nurses don't really have the option of doing. And so this is truthfully, Julie, why nurses experience more moral distress than any other profession, any other healthcare profession. So doctors certainly experience moral distress, as do social workers but the unrelenting pressure of communication challenges and of the power dynamic uniquely predispose nurses, most particularly bedside nurses, to, to moral distress. And then a couple other things that are looming right now, cost issues, we just don't have enough nurses. And when you're short of nurses, then communication just isn't as efficient and the power dynamic becomes even uh, more amplified 
because the nurse voice is diminished when you're in a situation of low staffing. We need to train nurses better to address moral distress and, and most particularly in the way of communication. And this is where something like vital talk is incredibly helpful. And so there are wonderful initiatives out there to empower nurses, but um, it's just a little bit like gender inequality. We need everybody to care about gender inequality to create gender equality. And so we need physicians, social workers, the, the entire healthcare team really needs to elevate and empower nurses to have greater voice in these healthcare decisions. You know, Kathy, thinking and reflecting back to the to the prior question that I asked you and you were responding about the importance of functional teams and, you know, that we, in palliative care, we have the ability to have that level of trust because we work together as a team day in and day out. And then tying that into what you just said about the, uh, the staffing components and nursing at the bedside not having that voice. All of that ties into the fact that functional teams communicate, you know, you've got that trust. And it is hard when you have nurses that, that don't have a chance to work with the same team, as you were referencing when these crisis intervention teams are coming through to develop that trust. And I can fully appreciate how that would impact their voice and more importantly, lead towards further moral distress. So thank you for for correlating all of that for us because it is it's painting a picture that maybe we have not stopped long enough to stop and think about and this has given us the chance to be able to do that um, you start you know talking about well you can you can tell us what are the consequences of moral distress well, I'll, I'll tell you, and I'll just ask our listeners to reflect on how these consequences are going to be amplified in these times. Um, well, early on, um, nurses that face a, a long-term uh, healthcare situation, perhaps one patient who is having life-prolonging uh, care that is um, not congruent with the patient's wishes or is causing symptom burden or pain, um, the first thing that that nurse would experience is emotional exhaustion. And, um, and you know, uh, it just takes a lot of emotional commitment and a lot of emotional energy to do good patient care because we need emotional energy to engage with patients and to be relationally connected to patients. So we need all of our cognitive skills but healthcare and perhaps teaching and you know, pastoral care are parallel examples of professions that require an incredible level of emotional engagement. And so when the nurse is experiencing moral distress, the nurse will become emotionally exhausted and that can very, very quickly lead to distancing from patients and then nurses carry this home and they end up distancing themselves from their families, from their peers, and are, are at risk for compassion fatigue. And the other element that happens here is um, when, when nurses are confronted with unrelenting 
um, moral distress and they feel that they are not valued or listened to in their healthcare system or by members of their team, they experience that as depersonalization. And you know, depersonalization, as we know, is, is what concentration camp uh, survivors uh, tell us was the worst part, more than being starved, more than being beaten, was being left with this perception that they were less than human. And so depersonalization is something to take very, very seriously. On the one hand, we're asking nurses to engage with their full selves, but then on the other hand, these nurses are perceiving that not only is that a worthless investment, but they are being treated as less than full human beings. So that, that's a very serious thing. And unfortunately, that can lead to compassion fatigue. So here's where I'd actually like to make a comment about resiliency. The definition of compassion fatigue is when the demands of the situation outstrip the ability of the individual to meet those demands. Now, that says nothing about the ability of the individual. So when we talk about compassion fatigue, there are two ways that we can address it. Number one, we can try to make our, our nurses more resilient. And those are all good efforts. Self-care, you know, we meditate, we exercise, we pray, we form good relationships. That's all good. But we do have to recognize that even the most resilient human beings have a place where the demands of the situation outstrip their ability. And so even as we try to make nurses more resilient, and I'll go on record as saying that that's important, I think we have every bit as important a responsibility to transform the system so that the demands we place on nurses are fair, reasonable, equitable, and that we resource them to do this work. So now we come to COVID-19 where we have these resilient nurses. I mean, I mean, go into any emergency room, ICU, mm -hmm. before this epidemic happened, and you see incredibly capable, sophisticated, compassionate, dedicated nurses doing amazing things. And now we've put them in this situation that's crippling and, and expecting them to day after day after day, step up and do this more and more and more. Now, yes, we can solve this with enough ventilators, enough beds and enough equipment, but we also need to support nurses to have communication patterns, to have very clear and transparent guidance and to have structures that accommodate their needs and say, yes, you need a day off. Yes, we need to help you go home to your family in ways that are safe. Yes, we need to protect your health care as much as that of our patients. So, Julie, if we are going to address moral distress, we must do this on both fronts. We simply have to give nurses the, the, the um, skills and the guidance and the support to become more resilient human beings. That's wonderful. But we also need to transform these healthcare structures to reduce the risk of, of moral distress and compassion fatigue in our frontline nurses. So if we're going to solve the problem of moral distress, we have to do it from both of these angles.
Kathy, that that puts a, a, a light on the fact of more distress, the compassion fatigue. All of this ultimately leads to burnout, you mm-hmm. know, of the nurse, physical illness of the nurse. If our nurses are getting ill, that just amplifies the whole problem, even independent of this current crisis. But ultimately, nurses choosing to leave the profession. And so it's almost like this is a setup for failure, but it's also an opportunity to step back and look at the importance of valuing the nurse's voice, valuing the importance of communication, value the importance of trusting relationships, valuing the importance of resources so that we can try to move forward in a different in a different light from what we have just accepted as this is just how it's been, it's how it's going to be. And so if there is on the other side of this crisis an opportunity, I think this has brought to light the importance of of what it is that that nurses actually do and and helping keep our 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 country and our patients and our healthcare system stable. And I I appreciate you you lending voice uh, voice to that. You know, and within the current challenges we have right now going on with COVID-19, moral decision making being you know extremely significant right now. Are nurses involved or are they being marginalized? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And this is where I think first and foremost, this is about nurses supporting nurses, um, advocating for your own profession and elbowing your way into the table as it were. Um, I think that this is, there's a real opportunity for nurses now um, nurses need to be able to rely on their healthcare structures to make policy and protocols in thoughtful ways, in ways that are discerning and compassionate and evidence-based. And let's remember that it's nurses who contribute to that evidence of best clinical practices. So their voice um, needs to be heard now. Um, and so this engagement with healthcare systems Uh, with the nurse voice being heard, as well as the physician voice, as well as the social work voice, as all of these voices are important. And these are more important than kind of the bottom line, the the financial cost decisions. Um, There's a a real possibility to transform healthcare um, in the future. And we wanna look for that opportunity. But part of this is involved, uh, involves, creating structures that communicate these expectations, um, procedures, um, guidelines, standards, um, with transparency and honesty. And truly, Julie, at, at the end of this, we're going to see two different kinds of healthcare systems come to light. Um, those that have devalued their staff, those who've given unclear guidelines, those who've punished their staff, those who've demanded that staff who are sick come in. Um, There will be those um, healthcare systems that we will call out. And there will be other systems. And I'm really grateful at the University of Utah Health System to number ourselves among health systems that truly value their staff, um, truly are trying to 
communicate transparently with honesty, with regularity, and with guidance that nurses can trust and doctors can trust, that everyone gets on the same page and can now work shoulder to shoulder as a team. With, you know, with the nurse carrying every bit as much weight as the nurse always has, but in a way that's now valued, listened to, and advocated for. And so we are going to, at the end of this, um, and I, I, I see this as an area of hope, we are really going to understand what it takes to make an effective and compassionate healthcare system work. And at the end, we know that that's going to require good listening, good communication, but darn it, the truth is it's going to require more resources. And I'm not just talking about PPE. I'm talking about investment in all of our healthcare staff. Um, and I mean salaries and staffing and equipment and ongoing education. All of those things are vital to keep a staff engaged um, with compassionate care, but also bringing best practices and innovative strategies. Um, and, and this could actually, if we ever do get on the other side of this, this could actually be, be a good thing. But there are a couple, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Excuse no, me. I was just, I was, I was agreeing with you. I think that this is a forced function of a stop and regroup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now we're living through it. But on the other side of this, it's going to require some intelligent reflection and it's going to require people stepping up and getting to the table and us expanding the voices that we're asking to be heard. And it's going to be unique. It's going to be a unique, unique redesign of the healthcare system for the next generation of both nurses and the next generation of patients that we're caring. And, you know, Kathy, one of the things that you, what you mentioned that, that struck with me was when you said nurses need to support each other. And I have had the, um, the privilege and the, and the, the, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm a nurse. I've been a lifelong palliative care nurse. I'm in the, um, in the supportive role during this crisis by trying to provide the resources to the field to help the nurses in the front lines. And one of the things that I've noticed as part of that responsibility within HPNA is what we're seeing going on within our, our SIG communication platforms. Mm -hmm. Nurses are reaching out to each other now. I mean, they always have, but it's been more along the lines of, well, what, you know, what, what about this protocol or that protocol? And what we're seeing in our trending right now is that nurse, nurses are reaching out from a compassion standpoint. From a supportive standpoint, there is more engagement in colleagues and, and that, that don't know each other, but are sharing with each other in this journey that they're they're out there in the front lines right now. And it has been a remarkable thing to observe and to to just see that nurses supporting each other come forward um, under a level of compassion and under a level of, of shared intelligence. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's been a remarkable thing to, to, to bear witness to. Right, I agree with that. And I'm pleased to say that that's happening in palliative social work as well. Um, but I would invite you, Julie, to bring it back to the bedside here. 
a little bit. And this can be something as small as, and I'm sure you're familiar with the term, the pause or the sacred pause when there's yes. a death. And so even a moment, and this, you know, we are talking about healthcare in a crisis that's moving 90 miles an hour now. But even a pause when there's a death or an untoward event or just a moment where a team can huddle or a couple of nurses could huddle or any small collection of us can huddle and just take a moment and say, oh, that was horrible. But here we are. This is what we did. This patient has died. We did our best. We did it. We gave our best care. And let's just take a moment and remember this person and pull together as a team in this moment. Very small. Now, when you listen to that, that will, that will show up on the time signature of this podcast as maybe three seconds. But even if it was a minute or two minutes, just to gather, just for a team to collect itself, just for a, a little huddle of nurses to say, okay, but we're still in it and we're still doing our best work. Those small things are every bit as impactful on mitigating compassion fatigue as some of the larger things that we've talked about. Those are things that nurses can do among themselves and can do in their teams. These are things that nurse supervisors can bring to the moment, just stopping by and say, I understand this one went the wrong way, but I commend all of you for doing this work. So peer support matters, support from supervisors matters, and we need to get these practices in place because, and I'm sorry to say this, we will be losing nurses to this disease. Um, our nurses will be losing family members to disease, which means they're now coming to the workplace in a state of grief and brokenness that's unusual. These deaths are going to be very different in their grief trajectory. Uh, Julie, these are, these are sudden deaths. These are deaths that should not have happened. And those are horrible experiences for families. It's, it's, a, a, it's just a horrible form of grief. But remember, our, our frontline nurses feel this grief too. And so they are really going to be at risk for compassion fatigue and for burnout, just as they are right now for their own fear of being ill themselves, the risk of their own death. And frankly, I think we will come together a couple months from now and we'll say, now we have a lot of nurses with risk for longstanding psychological trauma. And these were nurses that aren't, aren't prepared like combat nurses are. Combat nurses are trained uh -huh. in this. And of course they uh -huh. do come back traumatized, but we haven't had a chance to train our nurses, our doctors, our social workers, um, or the cleaning people to deal in a combat zone. And that's, that's where some of these hospitals are right now and where, where many more hospitals will be in days to come. Kathy, thank you for reminding us about that pause, that moment, that reflection. It, it is important and it has been something that that we we really need to to raise to the top of, of uh, you know therapies and interventions um, to 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 encourage that pause and to you know let that be be something that we can we can share at the bedside 
you know, in the ER, where, you know, in the home, you know, wherever this is going to be presented to, to that nurse that's out there doing the, the hands-on care and the people that are supporting them. That's an important moment for us to, to note in this podcast. Mm-hmm. What variables, Kathy, are you seeing right now that we've got going on with this, with this crisis? Thinking along the lines of variables like the pace of caregiving, what, those, what types of things like that are you seeing? Well, you, you identified the first one and it's really the biggest one. It's the pace. Um, all of us work pretty briskly uh, all the time, but nothing like this. Um, again, we, we've never seen this before outside of war zones or first responders to hurricanes or floods or fires. But within the setting of the hospital, we've never had a time where the pace is going to be faster. Um, And then the professional responsibilities, both personal um, for one's family and children, and then the actual ones at the bedside are are just enormously burdensome right now. Um, Nurses who have children at home that they're actually supposed to be homeschooling, but they're working on the front lines in in the pandemic. And then, of course, just uh, the stress of being under-resourced, things like the PPE that we've talked about before, the lack of an opportunity to debrief with colleagues, to have weekends off, to have holidays off, um, nurses working double shifts. Um, All of this um, is, is again, heightening the risk of, of moral distress and the risk for compassion fatigue and burnout. So how do you see, Kathy, that the impact of moral distress on the grief experiences of our our nurses that are exposed to this? So, again, when we think about grief, we usually think about the grief that the family experiences when the patient has died. But we know, of course, that nurses experience grief when they lose a patient Um, primarily due to circumstances that should never have happened. So all of us lose patients to horrible diseases, and we know we've done that battle, and we've done that battle well, but now these deaths are happening when these deaths are preventable. They're happening to people who were otherwise expected to have many more years of, of life, and, and dying because of things like insufficient resources, things that in the United States, we, we simply should not have to face. So this is going to impact the grief experience. And there are just a couple of things we could highlight here. So first, this type of grief is consistent with what we would call ambiguous grief, a grief that um, comes from a death of unclear causation and circumstances or unnecessary circumstances. And so when we talk about ambiguous grief, that that leaves the griever with uncertainty about where to assign blame. And of course, in a pandemic, there's lots of blame to go around, but that's a very unsettled circumstance for the griever and the the human mind hates uncertainty. And Mm -hmm. so when, when a grieving person is confronted with a lot of uncertainty about a death, um, it makes the grief much more complex. And then the second thing is disenfranchised grief. So this is a 
phenomena described by Ken Doka, and he describes disenfranchised grief as a grief that's not socially endorsed by society. And so I'm afraid what we'll see is that the grief that our nurses, our social workers, and our doctors feel after they lose patients in these circumstances is not going to be socially endorsed, nor endorsed by the healthcare system. So all people working in healthcare systems in an administrative capacity could start preparing for this now to recognize that nurses who lose patients under these circumstances are going to be grieving in a deeper and more profound way than when losing patients under more ordinary circumstances. So how do, how do nurses experience this? First of all, nurses go home. And I need to tell you, Julie, I, I love the profession of nurses, but you nurses all believe you have to tough it out and, and power through it. <laughs> and so that's a social worker calling you out on this, not you yourself, but I mean- Well, I've said it three times in this, in, in this, in this podcast, Kathy, we need to push through. We right. need to push through. So duly noted, thank you. We do. So, so what this means is we, we don't want our nurses to grieve in isolation. Um, and everybody's living worlds of isolation. Now more than ever, nurses are going home. They're going home all by themselves or only to their families. And their families are under enough burden. The family can't bear the burden of what the nurse goes through every day. So nurses do, and thanks for talking about your your SIGs and your listservs, but that's one way to help. But again, within an institution, nurses need to come together to face this grief because otherwise they're isolated, their grief is unvoiced, they're unable because of this pace to process it in real time with the exception of perhaps these sacred pauses that we've talked about. But nurses are going home having witnessed traumatic deaths and they might have insufficient restorative sleep between shifts. All of these things really place our nurses at risk for complicated grief, for a grief that's unrelenting and goes on and may actually disable the nurse. And and this is why nurses would leave. This is why nurses would say, I've had it with nursing. What we want at the end of this and I'm, I'm very serious about this voice of mine advocating, Julie, and I feel every bit as strong about this for my own professional social work. What we want at the end of this is the esteem of the nurses to be raised among themselves, among their peers, among the healthcare leadership and across the country. I mean, I'm not surprising you, you know this as well as I, that nurses are the most trusted profession in the United States. But that does not mean they are yet the most esteemed profession. And this is a transformative time. So we can do this. So that's on the collective nurse level as a profession, but on an individual level, and now I'm talking about nurse by nurse, we need to help nurses grieve these deaths. And I will just offer on behalf of my profession, social workers do this well. Social workers are not nurses, but we work with nurses. And so I would rather have my nursing colleagues who are suffering reach out to their social work colleagues who, while not at the bedside the way nurses are, 
understand and I think appreciate what nurses do. This may actually be one of the most wonderful connections that happens between my profession and yours, especially in the area of palliative care where we already have these deep mutually respectful relationships um, we can support nurses in their grief, just like we're supporting families. And, you know, I would offer that. I would offer that to HPNA on behalf of Swippin and just let you know that when we are looking at this someday in our rear view mirror, we will be able to say we've transformed best practices. We've addressed some of the issues of moral distress risk in nurses. And we have deepened the collegial relationships that will happen between our disciplines. And I do think all of these are possible. Um, ironically, social workers have even a smaller voice at the bureaucratic table of healthcare than nurses do. But I think we can hang together on this one and do a lot for the nurses of tomorrow by taking care of the nurses we have today. That, that paints a vision of hope. It paints a vision of support. It, it paints a vision of collaboration. And that is how we do transform best practices in care. And um, we're, we're, we're grateful for the contributions that the social workers have given us throughout all of our careers. I think, I, I don't think, I don't know that there's probably a nurse today that's not a better nurse because they knew a social worker. Um, and it, it's time to, uh, to move that forward. And that's where we got the exceptional opportunity with, with leadership guidance between our, our organizations to be able to bring that type of, collegial relationship and collaboration forward. And it's, a, it's an inspiring vision of hope. And uh, it, it, thank you for, for your voice on that. Maybe this is our moment, Kathy, that we can take a pause, a sacred pause, and um, ourselves as well as our listeners, if we could take this pause and reflect. Um, Let's, why don't we do that now? We did our best care. We're doing our best care. Let's take a moment and remember we're still here. We're still here for the next, the next fight. We're still doing our best work. We can move forward through this, but we need to be more informed about it. And we also need to be able to use our resources and the support of, of colleagues like you and our other social work colleagues, as well as chaplains. So thank you so much, Kathy. And I just wanted to see, did you have any did you want to share any final words with our with our listeners today? Actually, Julie, if I could, I, I'm going to paraphrase a beautiful quote on grief that's from the Talmud that I'm paraphrasing. And instead of using the word grief, I'm going to use the word suffering. 
So it says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's suffering. Do justice now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And I just want to share that because there's no one of us that can solve this dilemma, but because of who we are, we're also not free to walk away from it. So it's just a thought I wanted to share and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. Kathy, we are so appreciative of your contributions and your support. And I want to thank all of our listeners today for joining. I hope that you, um, We'll take your your own pause with your family or with your nursing colleagues or or with your your patient and your patient families wherever you can get that moment uh, and and reflect um, to help to help however this can be and the resources are out there. We'll have links um, to some resources both through SWIPIN, which is the Social Workers Hospice and Palliative Nursing Organization as well as HPNA, we'll also link y'all to some resources from ANA. And um, I'll have Kathy's bio as well as her contact information um, on the link associated with this podcast for you as well. And I'd like to thank everybody today for joining us and appreciate all the work that you're doing, all of the sacrifices that are being made and know that the support is here for you and for all of us during this this critical time. For additional resources to address COVID-19, please visit HPNA at advancingexpertcare.org and link to our resource page. Thank you again for listening and joining us and for all the work that you're doing out there to keep our patients cared for and be well and be safe. Thank you.